Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is a news episode for Rust 1.31 and the 2018 edition. My discussion of the 2018 edition, and for that matter, pieces of 1.31, is going to be split over two episodes. The changes here are large, and they're a big deal. These episodes are unfortunately coming to you about a month late, but that's because A, I was busy helping with the final polish and push for the new Rust website. Didn't design it, but I did help get it out the door. B, I ended up dipping back into burnout a bit from overcommitting in November and December, in part to do with the Rust website. C, December is always incredibly busy with holidays. And D, wow, is there a lot to cover here. It took me a long time to script this. And finally, E, I was working on the interview you just heard in the feed. But here's some more consistency and hopefully a lot less burnout in 2019. First, I want to say thanks to the show's current sponsor, Parody Technologies. Parody is advancing the state of the art in decentralized tech, and they're using Rust to do it. They lean hard on Rust's trifecta of safety, speed, and correctness. They're building cutting-edge tech. They're using tools like WebAssembly and building out things in peer-to-peer networking spaces. Two of the larger projects they're working on are Substrate, a framework for building blockchains, and Polkadot, a platform leveraging blockchain tech for scaling and interoperability in decentralized systems. And they're not just using Rust, they're hiring Rust developers. And at least one of the people they hired heard about their opportunities through this discussion here on the show. So if you'd like to work on any of these projects, you should check out their jobs at parodytech.io slash jobs. Now into the show. Wow, do we have a lot to cover. This first episode on the 1.31 release will focus on two things, the mechanics of the release and the edition release in particular, and then a couple of the features that appear in both editions. Rust 1.31 was Probably the single most important release for the language since Rust 1.0. In many ways, 1.31 is likely to be just as determinative of the future of the language as the 1.0 release was. 1.0 put Rust on a stable footing with its strong backwards compatibility guarantees. 1.0 gave people a foundation to start building on with the confidence that that foundation would still be there in six months. Before 1.0, that was not a given. Things were changing a lot. But it was unquestionably a beginning. The ecosystem had a few important pieces in place already, thanks to Rust's long history before 1.0, but many of those pieces were still really immature, and for a lot of kinds of projects, you were going to build everything yourself if you wanted to build something. Over the last three and a half years, that has changed quite dramatically. The Crates ecosystem is vibrant, and it continues growing steadily, so much so that we've started to have the kinds of bumps you expect with a bigger ecosystem, bad actors on Crates.io, Crate abandonment, and so on. We also, though, get the utility that comes from having a fair number of high-quality libraries and applications now available in Rust. Unlike when 1.0 happened, in many cases, it's now quick and easy to build something in Rust. One small example of that, I just default to using Rust at this point if I want to quickly whip up a command line tool. I find it's as quick and easy for me to do that as it is to use Node or Python, and the Rust compiler helps, and I get better performance than I get from JavaScript or Python. So the situation has changed a lot. With that background, though, the Rust 2018 edition has two big aims. One of those is to present all the improvements that have happened gradually over the last three and a half years, where we've had a release every six weeks. We want to present that in a coherent way. The other aim 
is to make some small improvements in the form of backwards compatible breaking changes based on the things we've learned and built in Rust over that three and a half year period. And I talked about both of these ideas a fair bit when I first mentioned the edition release all the way back in the beginning of 2018. And at that point, we were still calling it an epoch. But I think they're worth digging into again, and in some more detail in light of the release actually having happened. Rust 1.0 was a big deal for the reasons I mentioned around stability, but also for telling a story to the world. The story of Rust 1.0 was, we have a stable foundation for you to build on. Now, come build an awesome ecosystem with us. Since 1.0, if you've kept up, you've seen a ton of changes in the language and the ecosystem. That phrase, if you've kept up, is an important qualifier, though. Lots of people have not kept up. Plenty of people in the world undoubtedly took a look at Rust in the early 1.x days and decided not to dive in. Or maybe they did dive in, but then found that some of the gaps in the ecosystem or the rough edges in the language kept them from being able to progress. And while a lot of that has changed, it has changed on our normal six-week, not-that-big-of-a-deal cycle. Most of those point releases don't make a big splash, and that's exactly the way it should be. But it also means that most of those point releases have probably flown right under the radar for many people who might be interested in how their problems got solved. The 2018 edition release is another opportunity to tell a story to everyone out there who hasn't been following along with all of those point releases. And the story now is, we have a really rich and increasingly mature ecosystem here. Come build things on top of it. The standard library is far more mature now than it was in 2015, and so is the crates ecosystem. Many crates exist today that simply weren't around three and a half years ago, and many crates are stable today that could only run on nightly three and a half years ago. That's especially important for core parts of the ecosystem like Serde. And the language itself is substantially easier to use. We've had a lot of improvements to the language that have landed over the last few years. Small but important things like better error messages throughout, and big things like improvements to the module system. And it's really important to communicate all those changes and improvements coherently in one spot. An addition is also an opportunity to get the whole ecosystem in sync. Those pieces have landed piecemeal over the last three and a half years. So everything from what quote-unquote modern Rust code looks like to the state of the documentation gets out of sync over time. And that's not anyone's fault. Keeping it all perfectly aligned is probably impossible, and it's definitely not worth it. But in line with the idea of presenting Rust well, again... An addition gives us an opportunity to make sure, for example, that the docs all present the latest and best thinking, or that important parts of the ecosystem align on the same ways of doing things, or that our tools are working together as smoothly as they can be, and so on. The net of all of this, though, is that if you've been using Rust for the past three and a half years, you'll go look at the addition guide and think, wait, that, that landed two years ago. That's way before the 2018 edition for a lot of the features in it. And that's true. But since much of the world hasn't been using Rust for all of that time, and since there was no single place to find all of that information together previously, the edition release brings them all together into one coherent announcement that here's our more mature language and ecosystem, and one guide which captures all of the differences that have landed in the language over those three and a half years. So that's one part of the edition story. The other part, the other major part, is to make some backwards compatible breaking changes. That phrase probably seems like a contradiction in terms. After all, how can a breaking change be backwards compatible? 
The trick is that the only breaking changes allowed are at the level of surface syntax, not the deep semantics of the language. And there are only a couple changes even of the syntax. But you might be wondering, why do we even need syntax changes? When you design a programming language, you often, unless you're a very specific kind of programming language, reserve some identifiers, just strings of characters, as keywords. These are words that have special meaning that the compiler knows to do special things with. Obvious examples in Rust are things like fn for function declarations, or match for match blocks, or trait for trait definitions, and so on. You can't write let fn equals 42, trying to use fn as a keyword. You'll get the error expected pattern found keyword fn. So when you're building the language and you make a commitment to stability, like Rust did at 1.0, you've locked in those keywords. If something is not a keyword, it's fair play to use it anywhere. And if it is a keyword, you can't use it anywhere. But of course, sometimes you change your mind on what things should be keywords further down the line. In Rust's case, for example, we really want async to be a keyword we can use as syntax sugar for functions, which deal in futures, so that we can smooth the process of writing high-performance async programs. I'll actually be covering futures and async and await sometime, hopefully in the first half of 2019. They've been on my radar for a long while, but I've intentionally delayed talking about them because I've been waiting for those pieces to stabilize, and so that the things I said didn't just go out of date and become inaccurate. For now, it's enough to know that async and await were not reserved keywords in Rust 2015. People could, and probably no few number of people did use those words in their code bases as identifiers in the last three and a half years. We want them to be reserved keywords going forward, and so in Rust 2018, they are. So code that used them would now break. But since the breaking changes around some new keywords like that are only syntactical, it's relatively straightforward for the compiler to operate in different modes for the 2015 and 2018 editions. I say relatively because I don't want to downplay the amount of work that went into making this happen and happen smoothly. But it's important to realize that while there are a couple new keywords and a couple removed keywords, and there's one new bit of syntax for strings in support of that, the only thing that affects is the parse step of the compiler. Everything past that, modulo one small detail we'll talk about in the next episode on this, everything past the syntax is the same in both editions. And that's why the compiler can straightforwardly support 2015 and 2018 edition code side by side. After the parse step, it's the same. And if things shake out as currently planned for a 2021 edition, that will be true then for all three editions. The compiler ends up just having some different parse modes, and the underlying semantics are all still stable. Notably, this is very different from the breaking changes that happened in Python 3, which is the thing most of us are probably thinking of when we think of breaking changes in a programming language. There, though, not only surface syntax changed, also important parts of the language semantics changed. So that's what's happening in the edition. Let's talk for a minute about the mechanics of it. How do you opt into using the new edition and what changes when you do? From your perspective as a user, that is, not as an author of the compiler itself, the only thing you have to care about is the addition flag. That's a value set in your cargo.toml file, or passed explicitly as an argument to Rust C, to specify the addition. It currently takes two values, 2015 or 2018, and it can also be unset, of course, for backwards compatibility reasons. The flag's existence was supported on stable Rust as of 1.30, and 1.31 stabilized the 2018 value. 
If you don't set the flag in your cargo.toml or pass it to Rust-C, the compiler just defaults to the 2015 edition, as you would expect. From the 131 release forward, though, any project created with Cargo New will automatically set the edition key in cargo.toml to 2018. Now, if you have 2015 edition code, some of it may not compile if the 2018 edition flag is set. This is why the recommended migration path is not to simply add or change that value in your cargo.toml, but first to run cargo fix with the addition flag. That will safely rewrite your code to compile in both the 2015 and 2018 editions. Or in a couple cases, if it can't do that safely, it will tell you what kind of change you need to make. I covered cargo fix in a bit more detail back in the news episode for the 129 and 130 releases, so you may want to go give that a listen if you're curious. Once you've run cargo fix with the addition flag, then you set the 2018 addition flag in your cargo.toml, or pass it to the compiler directly, and you're off to the races. Cargo fix also has an addition idioms flag, and that will further rewrite your code to be idiomatic in the 2018 edition. If you want to use that flag, you should run it after those first two steps, but note that this feature is still relatively early in development, so it's able to do less, and what it can do doesn't always leave your code in a compilable state. So that's not a recommended part of the edition upgrade. I mention it because it's there for you to try out and give feedback on, and that should grow and get better over time. So that's the mechanics and the overall approach of the edition. Now I'm going to shift and talk about a couple features which are in the 1.31 release and available whether you're using the 2015 or the 2018 edition. In this episode, I'll be covering just the first handful of them. Better lifetime Elijah rules library stabilizations, and some cargo features. There are a bunch more that I'll cover in considerable detail in part two. So one of the biggest wins that's on both editions is a set of improvements to lifetime elision. Historically, you had to write lifetime annotations in a bunch of places that felt needless and obvious. And over its history, Rust has gotten better and better about just being able to figure those out for you. We have a couple more of those with 1.31. One is that when you're implementing a trait on a type which has a lifetime constraint, you've always had to write a lifetime on the impl keyword, something like impl lifetime A, the trait for the type lifetime A. This duplication was annoying, and it usually wasn't adding any actual information. It was literally just noise. So now you can write impl the trait, note that there was no lifetime on the impl keyword, for the type with lifetime A. The lifetime only goes on the type where you would assume it should go. Even better, if you don't need to name the lifetime to track where it belongs, as in what its relationship is with some other lifetimes in scope, you can just give it the placeholder underscore lifetime. So that would be impl the trait for the type with the lifetime underscore. And that signals to everyone reading it that, hey, there's a lifetime here, but it's not something the trait implementation interacts with or really has to care about. Lifetime annotations on structs also got better inference. Before, if you were writing a struct which had a lifetime, say L, and a generic T type bound to that lifetime, you had to write out explicitly T with lifetime L in the generic bounds on the struct. So you'd write struct foo with lifetime L and T having lifetime L, even if that relationship was obvious from how that lifetime was used in the struct. So now if you have some property bar on that struct, which is a reference with lifetime L to a type T, you can just write the top level definition the way you'd probably naively expect, struct foo with a lifetime L and a generic type T. That's a small improvement, but it is 
a very, very welcome one in my experience. It should clean up a lot of our code. As is usual for a point release with Rust, there are also a handful of nice little library stabilizations. And these really are just the same kind we see in every point release, which I think is actually kind of fun. This is a big, big release, but it's also just a backwards compatible point release. The first of these is that the non-zero types, which I talked about when they were stabilized in Rust 1.28, now have easy conversions into their regular that is not non-zero types. In other words, you can get a U8 from a non-zero U8. And this is a pretty obvious stabilization. It's always safe to go from a type which cannot be zero to one which can be zero, because the latter is a superset of the former. There's another convenient new from implementation as well, to take you from a reference to an option of some type T to an option of a reference to some type T, and likewise from a mutable reference to an option of some type T to an option of a mutable reference of some type T. It's not uncommon to have a reference to the container type here and to need a reference to the type it's containing. So these are symmetric and they're safe. Again, a nice little stabilization. Finally, you can now multiply time durations by unsigned 32-bit integers and 64-bit floating-point numbers. Yay! Again, small but nice wins. Cargo also got a couple features here. One of Cargo's new features is in support of the module improvements I covered a bit in the last news episode, and which I'll cover yet more in the next news episode. In the cargo.toml file, you can now specify an external crate rename. Historically, we renamed crates by using extern crate. So we would say extern crate foo as bar to rename a crate named foo to bar within the context of our crate. But since it's no longer idiomatic to have any extern crate declarations, you can now specify the key package with the desired name in your cargo.toml. So if we have a crate foo, we can write foo equals version 1.0 and package bar. This doesn't come up all that often in my experience, but it's really handy for when you have a name conflict between a third-party crate and a module within your own crate. Cargo also got support for using HTTP2 to download packages in parallel. To be sure, most of the time you spend doing an initial build is spent on the build part, but some of the time you spend goes to downloading, so parallel downloads can in principle speed this up, and that's another nice win. Now, we're out of time for this episode, but I'll be back in a week with another episode covering the rest of the 1.31 and 2018 edition features. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show. This month's $10 or more sponsors included Alexander Payne, Matt Rudder, Joseph Marhi, Rob Chuk, Ryan Osiel, James Higgins II, Brian Stitt, Dan Abrams, Brian McAllister, Andrew Dirksen, Graham Willadall, Stefan Lowensunda, Nick Gidio, Rafe Levine, Daniel Mason, Ben Amesfabode, Nick Stevens, Chris Palmer, Paul Naranja, Michael McDonald, Nathan Scully, Peter Tillemans, John Rudnick, Chip, Daniel Cullen, Nicholas Pochet, Jonathan Knapp, Ramon Buckland, Jerome Froelich, Scott Moeller, Adam Green, Embark Studios, Olushe Shonaya, Martin Hushober, Johan Anderson, Jacob Denar, and Anthony Deschamps. If you'd like to sponsor the show and get yourself on that increasingly and improbably long list, you can set up ongoing support at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can send a one-off my way via a number of other services, which are all listed at neurostation.com. You can also find scripts and code samples there for most of the teaching episodes and transcripts for a number of the interviews, and of course, full show notes for every episode. Notes for this episode are at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash news slash rust underscore one underscore 31 slash part 
underscore one. And yes, that's a long address. Just click the link in your podcatcher. If you're enjoying the show, please help others find it. You can tell them about it in person. You can share it on social media. You can rate and review it in a podcast directory, or who knows, you could just start emailing random friends. That would be kind of hilarious and great. The show's on Twitter at NeuroStation, and I'm there at Chris Kreitcho. Do always tweet at me with news. I like to include them in news episodes when they're not so incredibly overloaded as the 1.31 slash 2018 edition episodes are. You can also respond to the threads on the Rust user forums, Reddit, Hacker News, Lobsters, or you can just send me an email at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding.